This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development. The music you just heard is more than a radio hit. It's been spreading the word about Ebola awareness. Stay tuned to learn why rappers are talking about Ebola and why their voice matters. I think uh, the thing about radio and Ebola is accessibility. So especially when dealing with infectious diseases, which are a time bomb, like Ebola in this case, the challenge is to contain the disease and is arranged against time. We talk about food security with Shivaji Pandey, a food security expert who comments on how the world is doing in eradicating hunger. There is some very positive news uh, about food insecurity in the world. 63 countries are now set to have achieved the Millennium Development Goal number one. And that's a significant amount of progress. We speak to experts in Africa to discover how biobanks are changing the ethics of medical research. And we hear about plans to launch flying donkeys, cargo drones, to help deliver healthcare in remote areas of Uganda. Where you have incredibly dense urban infrastructure where speed is important, the simple way of putting it is that cargo drones can affordably and precisely collapse time and space. Finally, an update on what's new on SciDev.net in November. Welcome to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on science and global development. With the Ebola crisis becoming increasingly serious in West Africa, scientists and anthropologists are exploring new ways to help people protect themselves and their families from the virus. One of them is music, and there's hope that broadcasting songs about Ebola via radio will prove a vital tool to raising awareness and disseminating health information about the disease. In the studio with me is SciDev.net journalist Imogen Mathers to tell us more. Hi there, Imogen. Hello, John. Hi. So Ebola, rap and radio, what is the story here? Well, I've been speaking to Carlos Chirinos, who's director of SOAS Radio at the University of London and also a visiting professor at New York University. And he told me about the role that radio and musicians have been playing in providing information about Ebola and how people can protect themselves from it. Um, during the current outbreak in West Africa? I think uh, the thing about radio and Ebola is accessibility. So especially when dealing with infectious diseases, which are a time bomb, like Ebola in this case, the challenge is to contain the disease and is arranged against time. When dealing with infectious diseases, and this applies to Ebola in particular, the key important steps are identification of the disease and tracing. A newspaper will not help in that respect. Traditional media like newspapers or TV take a long time to to be produced and delivered. Imagine just distribution of newspapers. It takes editorial time to produce a news piece distributed. TV is often produced in urban centers and it has a much higher level of production. It takes longer to produce, it's more expensive to produce. TV sets are not as popular as radio sets. In fact, there is a, a penetration just by ownership of equipment. In most countries, radio sets are in 90% or over 90% of households. So radio is able to bridge those gaps and also bridge the illiteracy gap with people who cannot read or write. And Ebola and music, what's the connection there? 
Well, Carlos has been researching the different songs that have been produced and broadcast on the radio over the past months in Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone and across West Africa. He told me about why musicians have such an important role as trusted figures and role models in societies across West Africa and how this is now playing an important role in public health information campaigns on Ebola, as he explains here. I think the link between radio and music is critical. Radio broadcasting content is about 60 to 70% music. And music is a communication tool that reaches to young, old, and it speaks in, in languages that are common to the listener. Also, music and radio provide availability and repetitiveness of the message. And this is critical. Radio uh, broadcasting a song is being played at shops, at cultural centers, at homes, and in, in buses. And the repetitiveness means that uh, the message could be digested by the communities. The reputation of the musician is what uh, politicians, is what uh, social services, is what many people want to borrow, want to use their names, because their names are trusted as opposed to the name of a doctor who nobody knows. The only respectability of the doctor is the fact that he is a doctor. But an artist has built a reputation over many years. And this is one of the songs, Ebola in Town, by some musicians from Liberia, which talks about the threat of Ebola. Ebola, Ebola Don't touch your friend. Don't touch it. No dangerous. So what about the dangers of musicians disseminating the wrong messages? Is that a possibility? Yeah, this is a very important issue. And Carlos told me about some songs that have actually been fermenting fears about Ebola and about the need for the scientific community, the biomedical community and public health community to work more closely with musicians to ensure that the health information in their songs is as well informed as possible. Particularly with Ebola, we have heard about a lot of misinformation and urban or rural myths about the disease. Whether it is that the disease doesn't exist, or it was uh, made by the CIA, or is witch made. I only have one example that I, I found of a song called Ebola by a reggae artist called Black Diamond in Liberia. And the video starts with the question, is Ebola man-made? And the song, the song's lyrics say, there is no Ebola in America, there is no Ebola in Europe, there is no Ebola in Asia, it's only in Africa. Why? I say why. I say population control is what I'm thinking. Now this, if you, if you listen to this in the context there, you could interpret that as creating further doubts about the disease and actually counteracting the work of the health services. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast with me, John Escombe. Now, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, better known as the FAO, has released the 2014 report on food insecurity in the world, with some good news on the progress made to eradicate hunger globally. In the studio with me is multimedia producer Lou Del Bello to tell us more. Hi there, Lou. Hi, John. So, Lou, I know that the report highlights some very important achievements. Things are looking good. Yes, according to the FAO, the number of chronically undernourished people worldwide has dropped from more than 900 million to 805 million. That's in the last 10 years. 
but still there are big differences between the regions, some of them better than others. Okay, so can you give us some examples? Well, for example, Latin America and the Caribbean are doing pretty well, but the progress in sub-Saharan Africa and Western Asia has been way slower. So why is that? Well, it's mainly because the area has been affected by natural disaster in some cases and conflict in many other cases. But in other areas, the progress has been quite significant. How was that achieved? Well, correspondent Marco Boscolo put the question to Shivaji Pandey. He's a special advisor at the Agricultural Support System Division at FIO. And here's what he said. I think the way we do it is by, uh, or the way these countries have done it, is by exercising political will. It's not that technologies were not available or they didn't know what the problem was, but that high food price of five years ago, six years ago, in 2008-2009, just led to some significant amount of political disruptions in many countries. And many of these countries woke up and they said, they bet, we better do something, otherwise we will not be president or prime minister. And so they put their money and uh, they just fine-tuned some of the policies. Major um, progress has been made in uh, Latin America and in Southeast Asia, two regions where uh, things were already going fairly well. Uh, South Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa were lagging behind then, and they are still lagging behind to some extent. But some of the countries in Africa and South Asia have also made some progress. Do you think that this uh, positive trend can continue in the future, thinking about the fact that we are becoming 9 billion? I think it can continue. Uh, the fact that Secretary General of the United Nations has launched a zero hunger program is going to have significant impact on sustainable development goals, like there were millennium development goals that we are trying to fulfill. Now there will be sustainable development goals. And two, three of them is exactly about eradicating hunger. Some countries will still make less progress than others. That's the political will factor. One of the key factors is for sure agriculture, agriculture and development. How does access to plant genetic resources have a role in this situation? As I was trying to say, no country is self-sufficient in terms of plant genetic resources. That is, no country in the world can feed its people or meet its fuel demands or fodder demands with its own plants. Everybody depends on somebody else. Developed world depends a lot more on developing countries than vice versa in, in terms of genetic resources. If, if you have developed some good variety for a given condition, you have spent your time, you have spent your money. If there is a possibility for me to have access to that, to use it in my situation if I can, or to use your genes that you have accumulated there in my breeding program, I can save a lot of time and a lot of money. And this is what was happening in 60s and 70s. Green Revolution occurred because of that. And this is what is not happening anymore. What is limiting access to plant genetic resources? I think to some extent greed. Uh, scientists and countries feel that if they don't share, maybe somebody will later on come and pay them for it, you know, and so they can make money. A lot of this is ignorance. They don't know the benefit of actually sharing, that the countries, the people will be better off if they actually share than they are by making a little bit more money. I think the fact that um, agricultural research and development became very heavily privatized in the last 30, 40 years, and uh, private sector doesn't share. I mean, they, they, they share, but they share for money. And I think just political will once again, the, that 
food security hasn't been very important to the world leaders. Uh, only when there is a big famine somewhere, then it comes on the political agenda, otherwise it disappears. So they are not doing anything. They have created these instruments, but they are not supporting them. Uh, they are not, uh, they are providing lip service. They are meeting, you know, every year and making some agreements, but whether they implement those agreements or not is, is uh, questionable. Uh, this year, 2014, is also the International Year of Family Farming. Uh, which is the role of smallholders farmer in, in this uh, goal of uh, getting rid of hunger? The smallholders are actually not the problem. They are part of the solution to, to hunger problem. Green Revolution of India or Pakistan occurred because of smallholder farmers, Punjabi farmers, Western UP farmers who had one to two hectares of land. They adopted technologies and their yields went up from 800 kilos per hectare to four and a half tons per hectare. The white revolution, the milk revolution of India that made India number one milk producer in the world also occurred on the back of farmers, small farmers who had one cow, two cows, that's it. The green revolution or agricultural revolution in China occurred. That occurred also because of small farmers. They grow anywhere from one to two mu of area one mew is about one sixteenth of an acre. And they are the ones who have actually produced. So there are lots of stu studies showing that small farmers are as efficient or even more efficient than large farmers in actually using the resources to produce more food. Well, that was Shivaji Pandey talking to Marco Boscolo. Now, Lou, what struck me was the focus on family farming as a tool to fight hunger globally. We should keep in mind the importance of local actions to solve big structural problems. That's key, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's important to work locally, but there's also a need for global action. And after all, we are seeing in this report how natural disasters and conflict increase food insecurity. And these are really global problems that can be tackled at international level. And there are many international programs in place for that. This is the SciDevNet podcast for news and views on science and global development. Next, biobanks. What are they and what ethical challenges are they bringing to medical research? Our reporter Anand Jagatia has been learning more. Hello Anand. Hello John. So for those who don't know, what are biobanks and how can they be used in research? So biobanks are basically just large repositories of human biological material and they're stored for research purposes um, in big freezers essentially. So things like tissue samples, blood, saliva, DNA, that kind of thing. Um, and biobanks usually also store the data which is associated with this kind of material. So lifestyle, health and environmental information about the person that the sample came from. Um, and that data is very useful for researchers because it can help them to identify environmental and genetic factors responsible for different diseases, for example. And the hope is that one day it will enable personalised medicine. So this is medical treatment which is tailored to the individual. So how important are biobanks in research today? Sounds pretty important. Yeah, I mean, they are very important and they're becoming more so. I mean, for large scale medical research, biobanks really are vital. I mean, you can imagine gathering participants and samples for individual experiments is very expensive. It's time consuming, especially if you need tens of thousands of participants for a large scale study. So biobanks give researchers easy access to large numbers and also importantly, a range of samples for their experiments. 
But what we're also seeing uh, these days are networks of biobanks, which allow research groups from potentially all over the world to collaborate and share samples. Um, but this, as you can imagine, comes with its own sort of challenges, just managing that amount of data and material. Mm. So I spoke to Professor Jan Eric Litton, who's the Director General of the BBMRI Eric. Not the most catchy acronym I've ever heard. but uh, So what they aim to do is set up an infrastructure for biobanks across Europe. Um, and they're also trying to help biobanks in developing countries to get up to scratch. Today the fragmentation is enormous in Europe because all biobanks do it their way. The way they are storing the material, how they define quality. And also the data that are extremely important to the samples are defined in different ways. So the aim is when it comes to the biobank is to make those uh, samples comparable. We will set up a catalogue here next year so uh, researcher and uh, pharma and others can find those samples. And uh, then we will have an equal criteria for quality and how we annotate the samples. So he mentioned that they have a long-term collaboration with biobanks in Africa. Are we seeing an increase in the prominence and importance of biobanks in African research? Yeah, definitely. Um, So I spoke to Chiara Staunton, who's a researcher at Stellenbosch University in South Africa, um, and she told me more about the growing importance of biobanks in African research at the moment. The greatest development in biobank research in Africa came a couple of years ago with a joint project between the Wellcome Trust um, in the UK and the National Institutes of Health in the US. They've come together and launched what is known as the H3 Africa project. And the purpose of this project is that um, research is done in Africa by Africans and for the African population. That is seeking to establish a number of biobanks across the continent. For example, there are, there's been um, Earmark 2 for South Africa, there's going to be one in Nigeria, one in Ghana. And the wonderful thing about this project is that it, it is African-led. So each of these biobanks would be capable of storing 100,000 samples plus from African research each year. And there's this kind of double benefit to installing more African biobanks across Africa. One is that it improves the research infrastructure of the countries involved because it gives the researchers their access to this powerful resource which can really help them to enter the bioeconomy. But also because the samples come from Africans, they can help researchers to find the causes of diseases in Africa and ultimately develop treatments which will help African populations. But what about ethics? So there are a lot of ethical, legal and social issues or LCs uh, that arise from the use of biobanks in research. And one of the major concerns is of uh, discrimination or stigmatisation in that the information obtained from the samples could be used against the individuals or the populations from which they've come. With biobanking, the greatest risks generally um, to the individual comes down to issues of confidentiality. Um, The Declaration of Helsinki, which is like the gold standard of ethical principles in medical research, states that the, um, and most ethical guidelines across the world, states that the confidentiality of the participant should be assured um, during the research process. But when we come to biobanking research, you can't guarantee that because DNA itself is is an identifier. We each have a unique DNA code. And if you really wanted to, you could actually find out um, who that person is based on the piece of um, tissues and cells in front of you. And once you know who that is, you can also see what kind of illnesses they have or if they have any particular genetic traits, which then can be used to stigmatize or discriminate against that person. 
And the other significant issue is informed consent. So in conventional research, an experiment is run, you get informed consent from the participant for that particular study with all its associated risks. So the, um, the participant is fully informed of those. Whereas with Biomax, you may not know what experiments or samples are going to be used for in the future because they're kind of like these storage houses. So that's a problem if the sample ends up being used for a kind of research that the donor originally wouldn't have consented to. With biobanking research, you may actually not know what research is going to be done on the sample. You may just be wanting to build up a large-scale biobank so that researchers can um, have access to this fantastic resort. But if you're doing that, you can't actually tell the person what research is being done. So essentially, you're just asking for their biological sample. And the problem with that is, is that all they're really doing is consenting to the, the use of their sample, but it's not truly informed consent because they don't know all about the study. So there's all these different models being proposed such as broad consent or tiered consent. Under a broad consent model, they will just be consenting to the use of their sample in, in future, but as of yet, unspecified research projects. Um, and generally, under such a model, um, and this is a model which is endorsed by the H3 Africa project, um, the person will give up their samples and it will be stored in a biobank. However, if researchers then want to access that um, sample, they must apply to the Research Ethics Committee and seek their approval. So in that way, there is some ethical oversight. The tiered consent model is, um, gives the, the uh, participant a range of consenting options. They may decide that their, re their sample can only be used for particular studies, for example, studies on diabetes or particular forms of cancer. They may decide that their sample can only be used um, for a particular number of years. So in this way, they may lay out a range of consenting options um, that they will then tick. They may also decide that um, if their sample is to be used for any studies outside of diabetes and cancer, they will have to be recontacted and be told about these studies. So in this way, it gives uh, more control um, to the participants themselves. And you might be able to imagine that even between these two models of informed consent, there are competing interests. So researchers, as we've heard, prefer the broad consent model because it makes their work easier. But individuals may prefer the tiered consent model because it gives them more autonomy. So it's kind of about trying to balance this research, which is basically done for the common good in a way and, and with respect for autonomy. And the last issue is, uh, which is quite tricky, is that of ownership. So once you've donated a sample, who owns that sample? Who owns the sample? Is it the person themselves? Do they continue to have ownership on that, on that particular sample after they have given it up? Or is it the researcher themselves? Or is it the people who own the biobank? Or is it the funders? The people who are paying, paying for this? And there's no agreement on this. Um, people are uncomfortable with the idea of owning part of, um, uh, of other people's body. But we don't know who actually owns it. You know, if the person themselves continues to own it, do they then have rights to any profits which comes out of the research? So what needs to be done to address all of this? Well, it's a complicated issue. There aren't any easy answers. But what people that I interviewed said is that it's all about dialogue. We have to allow um, the public and researchers and biobank managers to have dialogue in the hope that people can at least agree on certain issues and start to move forward. We definitely need to have a public dialogue on the matter, um, particularly if we're looking at Africa. Um, 
if, if you look at the studies that are published on uh, donors' views of biobanking research, they're very, very limited. And now the History Africa project is um, does endorse community engagement. And that is where you begin to talk to the community and ask their views on certain issues. So we need to figure out what their views are, what whether they support it, do they understand what the research is, and um, what sort of guidelines and um, policies would they like to see in place? Well, that was Kiara Staunton talking about biobanks with our reporter Anand Jagatia. Thanks very much, Anand, for coming in. Well, now back with us in the studio is SciDev.net reporter Imogen Mathers to help us solve the mystery surrounding a very peculiar species, flying donkeys. Welcome back, Imogen. Um, what exactly are flying donkeys? Well, flying donkeys is a phrase used by Jonathan Ledgard, who is director of Afrotech, an initiative based in Switzerland that works on pioneering new technologies in Africa at a massive scale. And the phrase flying donkeys comes from a conversation that Jonathan had with an elder in northern Kenya when they were talking about the idea of cargo drones. Cheap robotics that Jonathan says could transform how goods are delivered in rural and urban Africa. Well, first of all, we have to talk about what a cargo drone is, because I think a lot of your audience won't know. I mean, drones have a bad reputation. They mostly, so far, kill and um, spy on people. But we believe that robotics in general, and particularly flying robotics, and a cargo drone is basically a flying robot that can carry some stuff autonomously through the sky from one point to another point, often on very complex networks. And obviously for Africa, the reason I believe in it fervently, the reason we're working on it, is Africa simply will not have enough money to build out the road system that Africa needs in order to uh, grow its economy at the rate it needs to grow its economy. Not everything will make sense to ship by air. You're not going to ship your mangoes by air. You're not going to ship water by air or firewood or anything like that. But a lot of time-dependent goods and a lot of high-value goods will get shipped by air. And around large African cities, such as Lagos, we envisage that within 10 years, certainly perhaps even sooner, we'll have strung up virtual cable car ways in the sky around the city, which are just moving stuff around. So does Jonathan envisage that these will be commercial drone routes? Is that the idea? Well, eventually, yes, quite possibly. But actually, initially, the project that him and his team are working on is one linked to public health and to blood transportation in rural Uganda. The first use case that we are looking at, because obviously we want to start small and we want to start tangible, we want to prove scientifically, and in this case clinically, that cargo drones can add value, is that we are negotiating to set up two routes in Africa and two different African countries which will ship blood. As you probably know, one of the largest killers of young children under five is malarial anemia, sickle cell anemia, parasite-related anemia, and malnutrition-related anemia. Basically, all of those influence need blood transfusions, and often they're being forced to travel to the blood rather than the blood travelling to them. Further down the line, Jonathan says that he hopes cargo drones will be used in the commercial sector and can really change and improve how goods are delivered in both rural and urban Africa, particularly in areas where road transport is massively inadequate and in urban areas that are badly affected by congestion. One of the things we want to do with the 
the roots uh, is obviously the core challenge and purpose is to, to deliver the blood, but we want to create a legal and regulatory environment where these commercial cargo drone routes can then be established. So we can see possibly over and around Lake Victoria, which is a highly populated area, um, where the road system is completely inadequate and uh, travel time is unacceptable, that within a few years there is a real possibility of creating cargo drone routes which, you know, are crisscrossing the lake or along the margins of the lake. So now what about trade between countries? Does he envisage drones can help here at all? Yes, I asked him about whether he sees cross-border trade routes opening up through cargo drones, and he had some very interesting things to say about it. Uh, one of the things you're going to see with drone, uh, cargo drone technology as the routes develop is you will be calling the bluff on uh, regional economic uh, groupings in Africa, whether it's the ECOWAS or uh, East African Community or SADAC, you know, where they made a lot of talk about free trade, but the reality is when you get to the border that often the trade is not as free as it should be. I would really hope that we do have cross-border drone flights, but that's obviously when you've got the industry at some kind of uh, massive scale that that would happen. But clearly when you're able to order something on your mobile phone in Kenya and have it sent from Uganda or Rwanda um, the same day, um, you know, I think some of those borders are going to break down a little bit. You're listening to the SciDev.net podcast for news and views on global development. Well, now we discover what's next in SciDev.net's agenda with Anita Macri, SciDev.net opinion and special features editor. Two thousand and seven brought with it a shift in the balance of the world's population. It marked the first time in human history that more of us live in urban areas than in rural areas. Today that figure stands at three point nine billion or fifty four percent of the global population. This growth brings with it a host of challenges for cities already struggling to provide services and cope with environmental pressures. Next month, in the side of Net Spotlight, we'll be taking a closer look at urban planning and technologies that can help make a difference and exploring case studies from around the world. And Anita has joined us here in the studio to tell us more. Hi, Anita. Hi, John. So what's in the spotlight? Well, what we call a spotlight is essentially a collection of articles that we put together to give readers a bit of an in-depth look at a particular issue. We publish about three of them a year, and next month's spotlight will be the last one for this year. And what will the upcoming spotlight be about? The next one focuses on cities and sustainability. Um, As you know, there's an ongoing trend of people moving from rural to urban areas and together with population growth, this is putting a lot of pressure on services and infrastructure that in many cases are already not up to scratch. So the question is, how can cities reimagine their futures and become more sustainable in the face of this growth? 
I've been working with Kate Hawley of ESET International, our consultant for this spotlight, to look into that. So now what are some of the issues that you'll be exploring? Well, many of our listeners will probably know firsthand about some of the challenges. I'm thinking about things like traffic, how long it takes to get from A to B in many cities, Uh, the pollution and accidents or poor drainage landfills. A lot has been written about the challenges, so we'll be focusing more on the solutions highlighting trends in urban planning and cases where technology has played a part in positive change. So there will be case studies from cities around the world and expert insight into the big picture of some of the trends we're seeing. What kind of content can our listeners expect to find then? Spotlights typically include a set of opinion articles from experts in the field, feature articles including facts and figures, and multimedia pieces. What we aim for is a balance between an overview of the topic, views that challenge our thinking around it, and stories to give a flavour of what's happening on the ground. Well, Anita, thanks for letting us know what's coming up. It's all looking good and I'm looking forward to it already. Thanks for coming in. Thank you, John. Well, that's it for this month's podcast. Stay connected with SciDev.net for more news and views on global development. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, John Escombe, and all of the team here in London. Bye-bye.